Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 249 of Forgotten Classics, where we pursue the people of the mist by H. Ryder Haggard. First, the podcast highlight. This is a pretty new podcast. It is called The Carson Podcast. It's about, as you might guess, Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. The host, Mark Malkoff, is so enthusiastic and evidently has pretty good contacts that he is conducting a series of interviews with people who worked on The Johnny Carson Show, frequent guests, top entertainers, And I have listened to only one, but that interview was so good that it was kind of like an extended version of Comedians in Cars Having Coffee, which I've often mentioned on Crackle, that uh, Jerry Seinfeld does with different people. He talked to Tom Dreesen, and this guy was, wow, what a storyteller. There are also interviews up at this point with Charles Grodin, Teresa Ganzel, I don't know if that's how you say her name, I haven't heard her say it, and Stephen Wright. It's obvious that Mark Malkoff is a fan because oftentimes Tom Dreesen would mention somebody's name and he'd say, oh, right, he was this guy. Or sometimes he would interject, oh, well, was that so-and-so? Because he did that for the show, like be a talent scout or something. And Then um, Tom Dreesen would say, oh, no, that was this guy. And he's like, oh, from New York. So there's a lot of history there that we may not be privy to. It doesn't really matter, except what it does is it kind of paints this rich palette. I think I had known a really long time ago that The Tonight Show was in New York because Steve Allen was there and he was the host before that. And there were one or two others. I'm not really up on The Tonight Show stuff. But I do remember watching Johnny Carson tapping his pencil with his mug, and the logo for the show is the mug, but with Johnny Carson on it. So that's all pretty much beside the point, I guess. This is a chance to hear a lot of really interesting people telling stories. And for most of them, it's what they do for a living, telling jokes, telling stories, acting. So it's interesting. Give it a try. Now back to the people of the mist. So when last we left our intrepid band of Otter and Leonard, well, that's kind of a small band, but it's going to get bigger. (laughs) They had met Soa in a ditch, starving and wretched and sad, and they saved her life. Soa told her story. Leonard said, I will help you, but first, you know, you're going to have to show me what you're going to give me. So we don't know what that is. And secondly, I have the fever, so I'm probably going to die. And she said, oh, no, in the morning, I will cure you. Do not worry. So that's where we're left. The proposition is that he goes and rescues her young mistress who has been captured by slavers. Well, of course, we know that's what's going to happen, because otherwise, where's the adventure? (laughs) But the fun even when we know what's going to happen, is seeing how we get there, because that's the part we don't know. And what I can tell you is that today's chapters are good and get us well and truly on the road to true action. I did three chapters because the last one wasn't that long, and I wanted to get our foot in the door to really launching this thing. 
Also, really quickly, I want to mention that we've got three words for today. Gerdon, which is reward. Emute, which is uprising. And farinaceous, which means starchy. So that when they talk about farinaceous foods, they're talking about starchy foods, potatoes, bread, rice, that kind of thing. Okay, I think we're ready, and I'm pretty sure you're tired of waiting. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 7 Leonard Swears on the Blood of Akka On the morrow, Leonard woke early from a troubled sleep, for his fever would scarcely let him rest. But early as it was, the woman Soa had been up before him, and on coming out of the cave, the first thing he saw was her tall shape bending over a little fire, whereupon a gourd was boiling, the contents of which she stirred from time to time. "'Good morning to you, white man,' she said. "'Here is that which shall cure you of your sickness, as I promised to do.' And she lifted the gourd from the fire." Leonard took it and sniffed at the liquor, which smelt abominably. "'It is more likely to poison me, mother,' he said. "'No, no,' she answered with a smile. "'Drink half of it now, and half at midday, and the fever shall trouble you no more.' So, as soon as the stuff was cool enough, Leonard obeyed, though with a doubting heart. "'Well, mother,' he said, setting the gourd down with a gasp, If nastiness is any proof of virtue, your medicine should be good. It is good, she answered gravely. Many have been dragged from the edge of death by it. And here it may be stated, whether it was owing to Soa's medicine or to other causes, that Leonard began to mend from that hour. By nightfall he felt a different man, and before three days were over he was as strong as he had ever been in his life but into the ingredients of the draft he never found the courage to inquire, (laughs) and perhaps it was as well. Shortly after he had taken his dose, Leonard observed Otter walking up the hill, bearing a huge lump of meat upon his shoulders. "'The old woman has brought us luck,' said the dwarf as he loosed himself from his burden. "'Once more the bush is full of game. Scarcely had I reached it when I killed a young kudu fat.' Ha <laughs> that, and there are many of them about. Then they prepared breakfast and ate it, and when the meal was done, once more, they talked. Mother, began Leonard, last night you asked me to undertake a great venture and promised reward in payment. Now, as you said, we Englishmen will do much for gold, and I am a poor man who seeks wealth. You demand of me that I should risk my life. Now tell me of its price. The woman Soa looked at him a while and answered, White man, have you ever heard of the people of the mist? No, he said, that is, except in London. I I mean, I know nothing of such a people. What of them? This, I, Soa, am one of that people. I was the daughter of their head priest, and I fled from them many, many years ago, because I was doomed to be offered up as a sacrifice to the god Jal, he who is shaped like the black one yonder. And she pointed at Otter. 
This is rather interesting, said Leonard. Go on. White man, that people is a great people. They live in a region of mist upon high lands beneath the shadow of the tops of snow mountains. They are larger than other men in size and very cruel, but their women are fair. Now of the beginning of my people I know nothing, for it is lost in the past. But they worship an ancient stone statue fashioned like a dwarf, and to him they offer the blood of men. Beneath the feet of the statue is a pool of water, and beyond the pool is a cave. In that cave, white man, he dwells whom they adore in effigy above, he, Jal, whose name is Terror. Do you mean that a dwarf lives in the cave? asked Leonard. No, white man, not a dwarf but a holy crocodile which they named the snake, the biggest crocodile in the whole world, and the oldest, for he has dwelt there from the beginning. It is this snake that devours the bodies of those who are offered to the black one. (laughs) As I remarked before, said Leonard, all this is very romantic and interesting, but I cannot see that there is much profit to be made out of it. White man, the lives of men are not the only things which the priests of the children of the mist offer to their god. They also offer such toys as this, white man. And suddenly she unclosed her hand and exhibited to Leonard's astonished gaze a ruby, or what appeared to be a ruby, of such size and so lovely a color that his eyes were dazzled when he looked at it. The gem, though roughly polished, was uncut, but its dimensions were those of a small blackbird's egg. It was of the purest pigeon blood color, without a flaw, and worn almost round, apparently by the action of water. Now, as it chanced, Leonard knew something of gems, although unhappily he was less acquainted with the peculiarities of the ruby than those of most other stones. Thus, although this magnificent specimen might be a true stone, as indeed appeared to be the case, it was quite possible that it was only a spinel or a garnet, and alas, he had no means of setting his doubts at rest. Do your people find many of these pebbles, Soa? he asked. And if so, where do they find them? Yes, white man, they find many, though few of such a size as this. They dig them out of a dry riverbed in some spot that is known to the priests only, and with them other beautiful stones of a blue color. Sapphires, probably, said Leonard to himself. They generally go together. Every year they dig them, she went on. And the biggest of those that are found in their digging, they bind upon the brow of her who is to be offered as a wife to the god Jal. Afterwards, before she dies, they take the gem from her brow and store it in a secret place. And there in that secret place are hidden all those that have been worn by the victims of countless years. Moreover, the eyes of Jal are made of such stones and there are others. This is the legend of my people, white man, 
that Jal, god of death and evil, slew his mother Eka in the far past. There, where the stones are found, he slew her, and the red gems are her blood, and the blue gems are her tears, which she shed praying to him for that mercy. Therefore, the blood of Aka is offered to Jal, and so it shall be offered until Aka comes again to drive his worship from the land. <laughs> A nice bit of mythology, I'm sure, said Leonard. Our old friends, the darkness and the dawn, in an African shape, I suppose. But listen to me, mother. This stone, if it is genuine, is worth many ounces of gold. But there are other stones so like it that none who are not learned can tell the difference. And if it be one of these, it is of little value. Still, it may happen that this and the others of which you speak are true rubies, in which case I should be willing to take my chance of that. But now, tell me what is your plan. This is a very pretty story, and the rubies may be there, but how am I to get them? I have a plan, white man, she answered. If you will help me, I offer to give you that stone, which I have borne hidden about me for many years, telling its story to none, no, not even to Mavum. I offer to give it to you now, if you will promise to attempt the rescue of my mistress. For I know by your eyes that if once you promise it, you will not desert the quest. And she paused, looking at him keenly. Very well, said Leonard. But considering the risks, the price does not seem quite good enough. As I told you, this stone may be worth nothing. You must make a better bid, mother. Truly, white man, I have judged you well, answered Soa with a sneer. Also, you are wise. Little work for little wage. Listen now. This is the pay I offer you. If you succeed, and the shepherdess is saved alive from the grip of the yellow devil, I promise this on her behalf and on my own, that I will guide you to the land of the people of the mist, and show you a way to win for yourself all those other countless stones that are hidden there. Good, said Leonard. But why do you promise on behalf of your mistress and yourself? What has she got to do with it? Without her, nothing can be done, white man. This people is great and strong, and we have no force with which to conquer them in war. Here, craft must be your spear. You must speak more clearly, Soa. I cannot waste time in guessing riddles. How will you conquer this people by craft? And what has Miss Rod, whom you name the shepherdess, to do with the matter? That you shall learn by and by, after you have rescued her, white man. Till then, my lips are shut. I tell you that I have a plan, and this must be enough, for more I will not say. If you are not content, let me go to seek help elsewhere. Leonard thought a moment, and seeing that she was determined not to be more explicit, said, Very well, then. And now, how am I to know that your mistress will fall in with this scheme? I answer for her, said Soa. She will never go back upon my word. Look, you white man, it is not for a little thing that I would have told you this tale, if you journey to the land of the people of the mist, 
I must go with you, and there should I be discovered, my death waits me. I tell you the tale or some of it, and I offer you the bribe because I see that you need money, and I am sure that without the chance of winning money, you will not hazard your life in this desperate search. But I love my mistress so well that I am ready to hazard mine. Aye, I would give six lives if I had them to save her from the shame of the slave. Now, white man, have we talked enough? Is it a bargain? What do you say, Otter? Asked Leonard, thoughtfully pulling at his beard. You have heard all this wonderful tale, and you are clever. Yes, boss, said the dwarf, speaking for the first time. I have heard the tale, and as for being clever, perhaps I am, and perhaps I am not. My people have said I was clever, and that is one of the reasons why they would not have me for a chief. If I had been clever only, they would have borne it, they said, or if I had been ugly only, but being both ugly and clever, I was no chief for them. They feared lest I should rule them too well and make all the people to be born ugly also. Ah, they were fools. They did not understand that it wants someone cleverer than I to make people so ugly. Never mind all that, said Leonard, who understood, however, that the dwarf was talking thus in order to give himself time to think before he answered. Show me your mind, Otter. Bas, what can I say? I know nothing of the value of that red stone. I do not know whether this woman, of whom my heart tells me no good, speaks truth or lies about a distant people who live in a fog and worship a god-shaped as I am. None have ever worshipped me. Yet there may be a land where I should be deemed worthy of worship, and if so, I should like to travel in that land. But as to the rescue of this shepherdess from the nest of the yellow devil... I do not know how it may be brought about. Say, mother, how many of the men of Mavum were taken prisoners with your mistress? Fifty of them, perchance, answered Soa. Well, now, went on the dwarf, if we could loose those men, and if they are brave, we might do something. But there are many ifs about it, boss. Still, if you think the pay here good enough, we can try. It will be better than sitting here, and it does not matter what happens. Every man to his fate, boss, and fate to every man. A good motto, said Leonard. Soa, I take your offer, though I am a fool for my pains. And now, with your leave, we will put the matter into writing, so that there may be no mistake about it afterwards. Get a little blood from the buck's flesh, Otter, and mix gunpo water with it. That will do for ink if we add some hot water. While the dwarf was compounding this ominous mixture, Leonard sought of paper. He could find none. The last had been lost when the hut was blown away on the night of his brother's death. Then he bethought him of the prayer book which Jane Beach had given him. He would not use the fly-leaf, because her name was on it, so he must write across the title page. And thus he wrote in small, neat letters with his mixture of blood and gunpowder straight through the order of common prayer. Agreement between Leonard Outram and Soa, the native woman. 1. The said Leonard Outram agrees to use his best efforts to rescue Juana, the daughter of Mr. Rod, now reduced to a state of slavery and believed to be in the power 
of one Pereira, a slave dealer. Two, in consideration of the services of the said Leonard Outram, the said Soa delivers to him a certain stone believed to be a ruby, of which the said Leonard Outram hereby acknowledges the receipt. Three, should the rescue be effected, the said Soa hereby agrees on behalf of herself and the said Juana Rod to conduct the said Leonard Outram to a certain spot in central southeastern Africa, inhabited by a tribe known as the People of the Mist, there to reveal to him and to help him gain the possession of the store of rubies used in the religious ceremonies of the said tribe. Further, the said Soa agrees, on behalf of the said Juana Rod, that she, the said Juana, will accompany her upon the journey, and will play among the said people of the mist any part that may be required of her as necessary to the success of this undertaking. 4. It is mutually agreed that these enterprises be prosecuted until the said Leonard Outram is satisfied that they are fruitless. Signed in the Manika Mountains, Eastern Africa, on the ninth day of May 18-something. When he had finished this document, perhaps one of the most remarkable that were ever written since Pizarro drew up his famous agreement for the division of the prospective spoils of Peru, Leonard read it aloud and laughed heartily to himself. It was the first time he had laughed in some months. Then he translated it to his companions, not without complacency, for it had a truly legal sound, and your layman loves to affect the lawyer. What do you think of that, Otter? he asked when he had finished. It is fine, boss, very fine, answered the dwarf. Wonderful are the ways of the white man. But, boss, how can the old woman promise things on behalf of another? Leonard pulled his beard reflectively. The dwarf had put his finger upon the weak spot in the document, but he was saved by the necessity of answering by Soa herself, who said quietly, Have no fear, white man. That which I promise in her name my mistress will certainly perform, if so be that you can save her. Give me the pen, that I may make my mark upon the paper. But first do you swear upon the red stone that you will perform what you undertake in this writing. So Leonard laughed, swore, and signed, and Soa made her mark. Then Otter affixed his as witness to the deed, and the thing was finished. Laughing again at the comicality of the transaction, which indeed he had carried out more by way of joke than for any other reason, Leonard put the prayer book in his pocket and the great ruby into a division of his belt. The old woman watched the stone vanish with an expression of triumph on her face. Then she cried exultingly, Ha ha! White man, you have taken my pay, and now you are my servant to the end. He who swears upon the blood of Aka swears an oath indeed, and woe be to him if he should break it. Quite so, answered Leonard. I have taken your pay, and I mean to earn it, so we need not enter into the matter of the blood of Aka. It seems to me more probable that our own blood will be in question before all is said and done. And now we had better make ready to start. Chapter 8. The Start Food was their first consideration, 
and to provide it, Leonard bade Otter cut the lump of raw meat into strips and set them upon the rocks to dry in the broiling sun. Then they sorted their goods and selected such of them as they could carry. Alas, they were but few. A blanket apiece, a spare pair of boots apiece, some calomel and sundries from the medicine chest, a shotgun and the two best rifles and ammunition, a compass, a water bottle, three knives, a comb, and a small iron cooking pot made up the total. A considerable weight for two men and a woman to drag across the mountains, untraveled plains, and swamps. This baggage was divided into three loads, of which Soa's was the lightest, and that of Otter weighed as much as the other two put together. It was nothing, he said. He could carry the three if need were. And so great was the dwarf's strength that Leonard knew this to be no idle boast. At length all was prepared, and the articles that remained were buried in the cave together with the mining tools. It was not likely that they would ever return to seek them. More probably they will lie there till, thousands of years hence, they are dug up and to become priceless relics of the Anglo-African age. Still they hid them on the chance. Leonard had melted the fruits of their mining into little ingots. In all, there were about a hundred ounces of almost pure gold, the price of three men's lives. Half of these ingots he placed with the ruby in the belt about his middle, and half he gave to Otter, who hid them in his bundle. Leonard's first idea was to leave the bullion, because it entailed the carrying of extra weight. But he remembered in time that gold is always useful, and nowhere more so than among Portuguese and Arab slave drivers. By evening everything was ready, and when the edge of the moon showed above the horizon, Leonard rose and, lifting his load, fastened it upon his shoulders with the loops of hide which had been prepared, Otter and Soa following his example. It was their plan to travel by night so long as the state of the moon served them, for thus they would escape the terrible heat and lessen the danger of being observed. Follow me in a few minutes, said Leonard to Otter. You will find me by the donga. The dwarf nodded. A quarter of an hour later he started also with Soa and found his master standing bareheaded by his brother's grave, taking a mute farewell of that which lay beneath before he left it forever to its long sleep in the untrodden wilderness. It was a melancholy parting, but there have been many such in the African fever belt. With one last look, Leonard turned and joined his companions. Then, having taken counsel with them and with the compass, he set his face to the mountain and his heart to the new adventure, hopes, and fears that were beyond it. The past was done with. It lay buried in yonder grave. But by the mercy of God, he was still a man, living beneath the sunlight, and the future stretched away before him. What would it bring? He cared little. Experience had taught him the futility of anxieties as to the future. Perchance a grave like those which he had left. Perchance wealth, love, and honor. Whatever the event, he would strive to meet it with patience, dignity, and resignation. It was not his part to ask questions or to reason why. It was his part to struggle on and take such guerdon as it pleased Providence to send him. Thus thought Leonard. And this is the right spirit for an adventurer to cultivate. It is the right spirit in which to meet the good and ill of life, that greatest of adventures which every one of us must dare. 
He who meets them thus, and holds his heart pure and his hands clean, will lay himself down to sleep without a sigh or a regret when mountain, swamp, river, and forest all are traveled, and the unknown innumerable treasure, buried from the olden time far out of reach of man's sight and knowledge, at last is opened to his gaze. So Leonard started, and his hopes were high, notwithstanding the desperate nature of their undertaking. For here it must be confessed that the undesirable element of superstition still held fast upon his mind, and now with some slight cause. Had not his brother spoken of wealth that he should win by the aid of a woman, and had not a woman come to him bearing in her hand a jewel which, if real, was in itself worth a moderate fortune, promising also, with the help of another woman, to lead him to a land where many such might be found? Yes, these things were so, and it may be pardoned Leonard if, setting aside the theory of coincidence, he began to believe that the end would be as the beginning had been, that the great adventure would be achieved and the wealth be won. We shall not need to follow the footsteps of Leonard Outremont his companions day by day. For a week they traveled on, journeying mostly by night as they had proposed. They climbed mountains, they struggled through swamps and forests, they swam rivers. Indeed, one of these was in flood, and they never could have crossed it if it had not been for otter's powers of natation. Six times did the dwarf face the torrent, bearing their goods and guns held above the water with one hand. On the seventh journey he was still more heavily weighted, for with some assistance from Leonard he must carry the woman Soa, who could swim but little. But he did it, and without any great fatigue. It was not until Otter was seen stemming a heavy current that his vast strength could be measured. Here, indeed, his stunted nature was a positive advantage, for it offered the less surface for the water to act upon. So they traveled forward, sometimes hungry, sometimes full of meat, and even of what were better, of milk and corn. For the country was not entirely deserted. Occasionally they came to scattered kraals, and were able to obtain provisions from their peaceful inhabitants in return for some such trifle as an empty cartridge of brass. At first Leonard was afraid lest Soa should tire, but notwithstanding her years and the hardships and sufferings which she had undergone, she showed wonderful endurance, endurance so wonderful that he came to the conclusion that it was her spirit which supported the frailty of her body, and the ever-present desire to rescue one whom she loved as a surly dog sometimes loves its master. However this might be, she pushed forward with the rest, rarely speaking, except to urge them onwards. On the eighth night of their journey, they halted upon the crest of a high mountain. The moon had set, and it was impossible to go further. Moreover, they were weary with long marching. Wrapping themselves up in their blankets, for here the air was piercingly cold, they lay down beneath the shelter of some bushes to sleep till dawn. It was Otter who woke them. "'Look, boss,' he said to Leonard, "'we have marched straight. There below us is the big river.' and there, far to the right, is the sea. They looked. Some miles from them, across the great plain of bush that merged gradually into swamp, lay that branch of the Zambezi which they could reach. They could not see it, indeed, for its face was hid by a dense cloak of soft white mist that covered it like a cloud. 
But there it was, one at last, and there away to the eastward shone the wide glitter of the sea, flecked with faint lines of broken billows whence the sun rose in glory. See, boss, said Otter, when they had satisfied themselves with the beautiful sight. Yonder, some five hours' march from here, the mountains curve down to the edge of the river. Thither we must go, for it is on the further side of those hills that the great swamp lies where the yellow devil has his place. I know the spot well. I have passed it twice. They rested till noonday, but that night, before the moon rose, they stood on the curve of the mountain close down to the water's edge. At length she came up and showed them a wonderful scene of desolation. Beyond the curve of the hills, the mountains trended out again to the south, gradually growing lower till at last they melted into the skyline. In the vast semicircle thus formed ran the river, spotted with green islands, while between it and the high ground, over a space which varied from one mile at the narrowest to twenty miles in width at the broadest of the curb, was spread a huge and dismal swamp, marked by patches of stagnant water clothed with reeds which grew to the height of small trees and exhaling a stench as of the rottenness of the ages. The loneliness of the place was dreadful. Its waste and desolation were appalling. And yet it lived with a life of its own. Wild fowl flew in wedges from the sea to feed in its recesses. Alligators and hippopotami splashed in the waters. Bitterns boomed among the rushes, and from every pool and quagmire came the croaking of a thousand frogs. Yonder runs the slave road, or yonder it once ran, said Otter, pointing to the foot of a hill. Let us go and see, answered Leonard. We can follow it for a while and camp. They climbed down the hill. At its foot, Otter cast backward and forward among the bushes like a hound. Then he held his hand up and whistled. I thought so, he said as the others drew near. The path is still the same. Look, boss. As he spoke, he broke down the branches of a creeping bush with his strong foot. Among them lay the moldering skeleton of a woman and by her side that of a child. Not long dead, said Otter phlegmatically. Perhaps two weeks. Ah, the yellow devil leaves a spore that all may follow. Soa bent over the bones and examined them. One of Mavum's people, she said. I know the fashion of the anklets. Then they marched on for two hours or more, till at length they came to a spot where the trail ran to the edge of the water and stopped. What now, Otter? said Leonard. Here the slaves are put on boats, boss, the dwarf answered. The boats should be hidden yonder and he pointed to some thick reeds. There, too, they weed the corn, killing out the weakly ones, that they may not be burdened with them. Let us go and look. They went, Otter leading the way. Presently he halted. The boats are gone, he said, all except one canoe, but the weeds lie in a heap as of old. He was right. Piled in a little open space lay the bodies of some thirty men, women, and children recently dead. 
In other spaces close by were similar heaps, but these were of bleached bones on which the moonlight shone brightly, mementos of former sacrifices. Quite close to the first pile of dead was a mooring place where at least a dozen flat-bottomed boats had been secured, for their impress could be seen yet in the sand. Now they were gone with the exception of the canoe which was kept there, evidently to facilitate the loading and launching of the large boats. Nobody made any comment. The sight was beyond comment, but a fierce desire rose in Leonard's heart to come face to face with this yellow devil who fattened on the blood and agony of helpless human beings and to avenge them if he might. The light is going. We must camp here until morning, he said after a while. And there they camped in this Golgotha, this place of bones, every one of which cried to heaven for vengeance. The night wind swept over them, whispering in the giant reeds, fashioning the mists into fantastic shapes that threw strange shadows on the inky surface of the water as it crept slowly to the sea. From time to time the frogs broke into a sudden chorus of croaking, then grew silent again. The heron cried from afar as some alligator or river horse disturbed its rest, and from high in air came the sound of the wings of wild fowl that traveled to the ocean. But to Leonard's fancy, all these various voices of nature were as one voice that spoke from the piles of skeletons gleaming faintly in the uncertain starlight and cried, Oh God, how long shall iniquity have power on the earth? Oh God, how long shall thy hand be stayed? The darkness passed, the sun shone out merrily, and the travelers arose, brushed the night dew from their hair, and ate a scanty meal, for they must husband such food as they had with them. Then, as though by common consent, they went to the canoe, bailed her out, and started, Leonard and Otter using the paddles. Now it was that the dwarf's marvelous memory for locality came into play. Without him they could not have gone a mile, for their course ran through numberless lagoons and canals, cut by nature and the current in the dense banks of reeds. There was nothing to enable them in distinguishing one of these canals from another. In truth, they all formed a portion of this mouth of the river. There were no landmarks to guide them. Everywhere spread a sea of swamp diversified by rush-clothed islands, which to the inexperienced eye presented few points of difference. This was the road that Otter led them on unfalteringly. Ten years had passed since he had traveled it, but he never even hesitated. Time upon time they came to new openings in the reeds, leading this way and that. Then for a moment the dwarf would consider, and, lifting his hand, point out which waterway they should choose, and they followed it. Thus they went on for the most part of that day, till towards evening they reached a place where the particular canal they were following suddenly divided itself into two, one branch running north and one in a southerly direction. "'Which way, Otter?' asked Leonard. "'Nay, boss, I know not. The water has changed. There was no land here. The cut went straight on.' This was a serious matter, for one false step in such a labyrinth meant they would be lost utterly. For long they debated which stream to take, and at last decided to try that on the left hand, which Otter thought ran more nearly in the true direction.' 
They had already started in pursuance of his advice, when Soa, who had remained silent hitherto, suggested they should go first a little way down the right-hand stream on the chance of finding a clue. Leonard demurred, but as the woman seemed bent upon it, he yielded, and turning the boat, they paddled her some three hundred yards in this new direction. As there was nothing to be seen, however, Otter began to put her about again. "'Stay, white man!' said Soa, who had been searching the surface of the water with her quick eyes. "'What is that thing yonder?' and she pointed to a clump of reeds about forty yards away, among which some small white object was just discernible. "'Feathers, I think,' Leonard answered. "'But we will go and see.' In another moment they were there. "'It is paper, boss,' said Otter in a low voice. "'Paper stuck on a reed.' "'Lift it carefully,' answered Leonard in the same tone, for his anxiety was keen. How came it that they found paper fixed to a reed in such a place as this? Otter obeyed, laying the sodden sheet upon the thwart of the canoe before Leonard, who with Soa examined it closely. This is a leaf from that holy book in which my mistress reads, said the woman with conviction. I know the shape of it well. She has torn the paper out and affixed it on the reed as a sign to any who might come after her. It looks like it, said Leonard. That was a good thought of yours to turn up here, old lady. Then he bent down and read such verses as were still legible on the page. They ran thus. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth, to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose that which are appointed to death. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seeds shall be established before thee. Hmm, said Leonard to himself. The quotation seems very appropriate. If one had faith in omens now, a man might say that this was a good one. And in his heart he believed it to be so. Another hour's journey brought them to the point of the island along which they had been traveling. Ah, said Otter, now I know the path again. This is the right stream, that to the left must be a new one. Had we taken it, we should have lost our way and perhaps have found it no more for days, or not at all. Say, Otter, said Leonard, you escaped from this slave camp. How did you do it? In a boat? No, boss. The boss knows that I am strong. My spirit who gave me ugliness gave me strength also to make up for it. And it is well, for had I been beautiful as you are, boss, and not very strong, I should have been a slave now, or dead. With my chained hands I choked him who was set to watch me, and took his knife. Then by my strength I broke the irons. See, boss, here are the scars of them to this day. When I broke them, they cut into my flesh, but they were old irons that had been on many slaves, so I mastered them. Then, as others came to kill me, I threw myself into the water and dived, and they never saw me more. Afterwards, I swam all the way, resting from time to time on the islands, and from time to time running along the shore where the reeds were not too thick, till at length I escaped into the open country. I traveled four days to reach it, 
And most of that time, I was in the water. And what did you feed on? Roots and the eggs of birds. And did not the alligators try to eat you? Yes, one boss. But I am quick in the water. I got up on the water snake's back. Ah, my spirit was with me then. And I drove the knife through his eye into his brain. Then I smeared myself over with his blood. And after that, they did not touch me, for they knew the smell and thought I was their brother. Say, Otter, are you not afraid of going back to this place? Somewhat, boss, for there is that hell of which you white people talk. But where boss goes, there I can go also. Otter will not linger while you run. Also, boss, I am not brave. No, no. Yet I would look upon that yellow devil again. Yes, if I myself must die to do it. And kill him with these hands. And the dwarf dropped the paddle, screaming, Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! So loudly that the birds rose in a fright from the marshes. Be quiet, said Leonard angrily. Do you want to bring the Arabs on us? But to himself, he thought that he should be sorry for Pereira, alias the Yellow Devil, if once Otter found a chance to fly at his throat. Chapter 9. The Yellow Devil's Nest Sundown came, and as on the previous night, the three travelers camped upon an island waiting for the moon to rise. They had caught two flapper ducks in some weeds, and there was a talk of lighting a fire to cook them by. Finally, Leonard negatived this idea. It is dangerous, he said, for fires can be seen from afar. So they made a wretched meal off a little dried meat and some raw duck's eggs. It was fortunate that his caution prevailed, since as the twilight was dying into dark, they heard the stroke of paddles and made out the shape of canoes passing them. There were several canoes, each of which towed something behind it, and the men in them shouted to one another from time to time, now in Portuguese and now in Arabic. Lie still, lie still, whispered Otter. These are the slave men taking back the big boats. Leonard and Soa followed his advice to the letter, and the slavers, paddling furiously upstream, passed within thirty feet of where they crouched in the rushes. "'Give way, comrades!' called one man to the captain of the next canoe. "'The landing place is near, and there is rum for those who earn it.' "'I hope they will not stop here,' said Leonard beneath his breath. "'Hist!' answered Otter. "'I hear them landing.' He was right. The party had disembarked about two hundred yards away. Presently they heard them collecting reeds for burning, and in ten minutes more two bright tongues of flame showed they had lit their fires. We had better get out of this, said Leonard. If they discover us, they will not discover us, boss, if we lie still, answered Otter. Let us wait a while. I have another plan. Listen, boss. And he whispered in his ear. So they waited. From the fires below them came the sound of men eating and drinking, especially drinking. An hour passed, and Leonard rose, followed by Otter, who said, I will come too, boss. I can move like a cat. Where are you going, white man? asked Soa. 
I am going to spy upon these men. I understand Portuguese and wish to hear what they say. Otter, take your knife and revolver, but no gun. Good, said the woman. But be careful. They are very clever. Yes, yes, put in Otter. But the boss is clever also, and I, I am clever. Do not fear for us, mother. Then they started creeping cautiously through the reeds. When they were within twenty yards of the fires, Leonard missed his footing and fell into a pool of water with a splash. Some of the slave dealers heard the noise and sprang to their feet. Instantly, Otter grunted in exact imitation of a hippopotamus calf. A sea cow, said a man in Portuguese. She won't hurt us. The fire will frighten her. Leonard and Otter waited a while, then crept to a clump of reeds whence they would hear every word that was spoken. The men round the fire numbered twenty-two. One, their leader, appeared to be a purebred Portuguese. Some of the others were bastards and the rest Arabs. They were drinking rum and water out of tin pannikins, a great deal of rum, and very little water. Many of them seemed half drunk already. At any rate, their tongues were loosened. "'May a curse fall upon our father the devil,' said one, a half-breed. "'Why did he take it into his head to send us back with the boats just now? We shall miss the fun!' "'What fun?' answered the leader of the party. "'They won't cage the birds for another three or four days. The dows are not ready, and there's talk of an English cruiser, may she sink to hell, hanging about outside the river mouth.' "'No, not that,' said the man who had spoken first. There's not much sport in driving a lot of stinking niggers onto a dow. I mean the auction of the white girl, the English trader's daughter whom we caught up the river yonder. There's a beauty for some lucky dog. I never saw such a one. What eyes she has, and what a spirit. Why, most of the little dears would have cried themselves blind by now. You needn't think about her, sneered his leader. She will go too dear for the likes of you. Besides, it is foolish to spend so much on one girl, white or black. When is the auction? It was to have been the night before the Dow's sale, but now the devil says it shall be tomorrow night. I will tell you why. He is afraid of her. He thinks she will bring misfortune to him and wants to be rid of her. Ha <laughs> ha, he's a wag, is the old man. He loves a joke, he does. All men are brothers. He said yesterday, white or black, therefore all women are sisters. So he's going to sell her like a nigger girl. What is good enough for them is good enough for her. (laughs) Pass the rum, brother, pass the rum. Perhaps he will put it off and we may be back in time after all, said the captain. Anyhow, here's a health to her, the love. By the way, did some of you think to ask the password before we left this morning? I forgot to do so myself. "'Yes,' said a bastard. "'The old word, the devil.' "'There's none better, comrades, none better,' hiccuped the leader. Then for an hour or so, more of their talk went on, partly about Juana, partly about other things. As they grew more drunk, the conversation became more and more revolting, till Leonard could scarcely listen to it and lie still. At length it died away, and one by one the men sank into a sound and sodden sleep. They did not set a sentry, for here on the island they had no fear of foes. 
Then Otter rose to his hands and knees, and his face looked fierce in the faint light. Bas, he whispered. Shall we? And he drew his hand across his throat. Leonard thought a while. His rage was deep, and yet he shrank from the slaughter of sleeping men, however wicked. Besides, could it be done without noise? Some of them would wake. Fear would sober them, and they were many. No, he whispered back. Follow me. We will cut loose the boats. Good, good, said Otter. Then, stealthily as snakes, they crept some thirty yards to where the boats were tied to a low tree, three canoes, and five large flat-bottomed punts, containing the arms and provisions of the slave-dealers. Drawing their knives, they cut these loose. A gentle push set them moving. Then the current caught them, and slowly they floated away into the night. This done, they crawled back again. Their path took them within five paces of where that half-breed ruffian lay, who had begun the talk to which they had listened. Leonard looked at him and turned to creep away. Already Otter was five paces ahead, when suddenly the edge of the moon showed for the first time, and its light fell full upon the slaver's lips. The sleeping man awoke, sat up, and saw them. Now Leonard dared not hesitate, or they were lost. Like a tiger, he sprang at the man's throat and had grasped it in his hand before he could even cry aloud. Then came a struggle short and sharp, and a knife flashed. Before Otter could get back to his side, it was done. So swiftly and so silently that none of the band had wakened, though one or two of them stirred and muttered in their heavy sleep. Leonard sprang up unhurt, and together they ran rather than walked back to the spot where they had left Soa. She was watching for them, and pointing to Leonard's coat, asked, How many? One, answered Otter. I would it had been all, Soa muttered fiercely. But you are only two. Quick, said Leonard, into the canoe with you. They will be after us presently. In another minute they had pushed off and were clear of the island, which was not more than a quarter of a mile long. They paddled across the river, which at this spot ran rapidly and had a width of some eight hundred yards, so as to hide in the shadow of the opposite bank. When they reached it, Otter rested on his paddles and gave vent to a suppressed chuckle, which was his nearest approach to a laugh. "'Why do you laugh, black one?' asked Soa. "'Look yonder,' he answered." and he pointed to some specks on the surface of the river which were fast vanishing in the distance. Yonder go the boats of the slave-dealers, and in them are their arms and food. We cut them loose, the boss and I. There on the island sleep two and twenty men, all save one. There they sleep, and when they wake, what will they find? <laughs> they will find themselves on a little isle in the middle of great waters, into which, even if they could, they will not dare to swim because of the alligators. They can get no food on the island, for they have no guns, and ducks do not stop to be caught. But outside, the alligators will wait in hundreds to catch them. By and by, they will grow hungry. They will shout and yell, but none will hear them. Then they will become mad and falling on each other. They will eat each other and die miserably one by one. Some will take to the water. Those will drown or be caught by the alligators. 
and so it shall go on till they are all dead, every one of them, dead, 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 <laughs> and again Otter chuckled. Leonard did not reprove him. With the talk of these wretches yet echoing in his ears, he could feel little pity for the horrible fate which would certainly overtake them. Hark! A faint sound stole across the quiet waters, a sound which grew into a clamor of fear and rage. The slavers had awakened. They had found the dead man in their midst, mysteriously slain by an invisible foe, and now the clamor gathered to a yell, for they had learned that their boats were gone, and that they were trapped. From their shelter on the other side of the river, as they dropped leisurely down the stream, Leonard and Otter could catch distant glimpses of the frantic men, rushing to and fro in the bright moonlight and seeking their boats. But the boats had departed to return no more. By degrees the clamor lessened behind them, till at last it died away, swallowed in the silence of the night. Then Leonard told Soa what he had heard by the slaver's fire. "'How far is the road, black one?' she asked when he had finished. "'By sundown tomorrow we shall be at the Yellow Devil's gates,' answered Otter. Two hours later they overtook the boats which they had cut adrift. Most of them were tied together, and they had floated peacefully in a group. "'We had better scuttle them,' said Leonard." "'No, boss,' answered Otter. "'If we escape, we may want them again. "'Yonder is the place where we must land.' "'And he pointed to a distant tongue of marsh. "'Let us go with the boats there and make them fast. "'Perhaps we may find food in them, and we need food.' "'The advice was good, and they followed it, "'keeping alongside of the punts and directing them.' When necessary, with a push of the paddles, they reached the point just as dawn was breaking. Here in a sheltered bay they found a mooring place to which they fastened all the boats with ropes that hung ready. Then they searched the lockers, and to their joy discovered food in plenty, including cooked meat, spirits, biscuits, bread, and some oranges and bananas. Only those who have been forced to do without farinaceous food for days or weeks will know what this abundance meant to them. Leonard thought that he had never eaten a more delicious meal or drunk anything so good as the rum and water with which they washed it down. They found other things also, rifles, cutlasses, and ammunition, and better than all, a chest of clothes which had evidently belonged to the officer or officers of the party. One suit was a kind of uniform plentifully adorned with gold lace, having tall boots and a broad felt hat with a white ostrich feather in it to match. Also, there were some long Arab gowns and turbans, the gala clothes of the slave dealers, which they took with them in order to appear smart on their return. But most valuable of all was a leather bag in the breeches of the uniform, containing the sum of the honest gains of the leader of the party, which he had preferred to keep in his own company, even on his travels. On examination, this bag was found to hold something over a hundred English sovereigns and a dozen or fifteen pieces of Portuguese gold. "'Now, boss,' said Otter, "'this is my word, that we put on these clothes.' "'What for?' asked Leonard, for this reason, that should we be seen by the slave traders, they will think us of their brethren. The advantages of this step were so obvious that they immediately adopted it. 
Thus disguised, with a silk sash round his middle and a pistol stuck in it, Leonard might well have been mistaken for the most ferocious of slave traders. Otter, too, looked sufficiently strange, robed as an Arab and wearing a turban. Being a dwarf, the difficulty was that all the dresses proved too long for him. Finally, it was found necessary to cut one down by the primitive process of laying it on a block of wood and chopping through it with a saber. When this change of garments had been effected, and their own clothes with the spare arms were hidden away in the rushes, on the somewhat remote chance they might be useful hereafter, they prepared for a start on foot across the marshes. By an afterthought, Leonard fetched the bag of gold and put it in his pocket. He felt few scruples in availing himself of the money of the slave-driver, not for his own use, indeed, but because it might help their enterprise. Now their road ran along marshes and by secret paths that none save those who had traveled them could have found. But Otter had not forgotten. On they went through the broiling heat of the day, since linger they dared not. They met no living man on their path, though here and there they found the body of some wretched slave whose corpse had been cast into the reeds by the roadside. But the road had been trodden, and recently, by many feet, among which were the tracks of two mules or donkeys. At last, about an hour before sunset, they came to the home of the Yellow Devil. The nest was placed thus. It stood upon an island having an area of ten or twelve acres. Of this, however, only about four and a half acres were available for a living space. The rest was a morass hidden by a growth of very tall reeds, which morass, starting up from a great lagoon on the northern and eastern sides, ran up the low enclosure of the buildings that, on these faces, were considered to be sufficiently defended by the swamp and the wide waters beyond. On the southern and western aspects of the camp, matters were different, for here the place was strongly fortified both by art and nature. Firstly, a canal ran around these two faces, not very wide or deep, indeed, but impassable except in boats, owing to the soft mud at its bottom. On the further side of this canal, an earthwork had been constructed, having its crest stoutly palisaded and its steep sides planted with a natural defense of aloes and prickly pears. So much for the exterior of the place. Its interior was divided into three principal enclosures. Of these three, the easternmost was the site of the nest itself a long, low-thatched building of wood in front, and to the west of which there was an open space or courtyard, with a hard floor. Herein were but two buildings, a shed supported on posts and open from the eaves to the ground, where sails of slaves were carried on, and further to the north, almost continuous with the line of the nest itself, but separate from it, a small erection, very strongly built of brick and stone, and having a roof made from the tin linings of ammunition and other cases. This was a magazine. All round this enclosure stood rows of straw huts of a native build, evidently occupied as a camp by the Arabs and half-breed slave traders of the baser sort. The second enclosure, which was to the west of the nest, comprised the slave camp. It may have covered an acre of ground, and the only buildings in it were four low sheds, similar in every respect to that where the slaves were sold, only much longer. Here the captives lay picketed in rows to iron bars which ran the length of the sheds, and were fixed into the ground at either end. This camp was separated from the nest enclosure by a deep canal, 
30 feet in width and spanned at one point by a slender and primitive drawbridge which led across the canal to the gate of the camp. Also, it was protected on the nest side by a low wall and on the slave camp side by an earthwork, planted as usual with prickly pears. On this earthwork, near the gate and little guardhouse, a six-pounder cannon was mounted, the muzzle of which frowned down upon the slave camp, a visible warning to its occupants of the fate that awaited the froward. Indeed, all the defenses of this part of the island were devised as safeguards against a possible emeute of the slaves, and also to provide a second line of fortifications should the nest itself chance to be taken by an enemy. Beyond the slave camp lay the garden that could only be approached through it. This also was fortified by water and earthworks, but not so strongly. Such is a brief description of what was in those days the strongest slavehold in Africa. We are now in, well, barely, or just outside the door. <laughs> anyway, we have the layout. We've made it through the marshes, past the horrible slave traders who sound like they kind of deserve a terrible fate, and they've got one. Gators, cannibalism, starvation, heavens to Betsy. I really am so in love with Otter right now, and I really enjoy the way that Leonard asks his opinion. And Otter has these really very commonsensical approaches. I really respect him a lot. You can't really trust Soa. We don't know enough about her. She seems rather sketchy at this point, though she is clearly devoted to Juana, and that's a good thing for Juana. I can't wait to meet her based on just the little bit that the slave trader said. Sounds like a spitfire. Just somebody we need to spice the adventure up that much more. So next time, we are going to get into it with the yellow devil. That is coming and we can't get away from it. Haha, <laughs> it's going to be great. Now, as to other news... I have some very interesting podcasting news. There's a podcast called The Untold Podcast, and our friend in Hawaii, Ken Harmeyer, has a story on it. He's not reading it. He has a friend who's reading it, but it is funny. It made me laugh out loud. You could kind of see it coming a little bit at the end, but it was still quite satisfying, and it's not very long. The name of it is Soft and Chewy, and I'll put the link at the blog post for this podcast, but you know, if you just go to iTunes and type in Untold Podcast, I think it pops up, so it's pretty easy to find. So definitely go and listen. Other podcasting news, I am... The latest guest on Reading Envy, which is Scott Danielson and Jenny Colvin's podcast. I love their subtitle. I'll have what you're reading. <laughs> and we talk about some very different books from each other anyway. So there's quite a variety to think about. And I added a few books to my to-read list. So that comes out Sunday. I'll put a link to it in general. And again, you can find it on iTunes, Reading Envy. Other than that, I guess I really have nothing. I've been listening to Michael Drought's classes on science fiction called To Infinity and Beyond, and 
really so good. The classes are just half an hour long. They're found through the great courses. I got them from a friend who very kindly gave them to me, but but I know you can get them on Audible also. So possibly you can get them from Amazon. And I think The Great Courses has a website where you can get all this stuff. So, But it's really good. It's kind of a very, how do I say? It's not really quick, but it's a really good summary overview of science fiction from the very beginning with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein up to today. I highly recommend it. He's very personable sounding. The only thing I could criticize is he does tend to give away endings on books a bit. But I have noticed on the books that I don't know where I'm kind of interested in reading them. I don't mind that so much. He's not giving away so many details that you feel like you can't enjoy the story. And it's been very enlightening about some of the real insights of just big science fiction stories that I hadn't really thought of. I never thought of Ray Bradbury being a surrealist. And the fact that a lot of his stories have to do with loneliness, which seems to be a focal point for surrealism, that never would have occurred to me. And yet it does ring true. Though it sounds sadder than I think of his stories. So anyway, You may or may not agree with him, but I think if you're interested in science fiction, you would definitely enjoy that series. And other than that, nothing's really happening around the house. It's quiet these days. Well, Tom and I did take dance lessons. That was fun. Well, okay. Mostly, it was very hard because we haven't done anything like that in a long time. And you're trying to keep track of yourself and the other person. And then every so often, the teacher would say, keep track of the music. We're supposed to be having fun. And I'm like, no, that's the third thing. It's too many things to keep track of. So, but by the end, you kind of did start to get a sense for everything falling into place a little better. And we were dancing the merengue, which is very easy. So when the different partners would rotate around, you could actually have little conversations with them. And that gave me something to look forward to for when it's all a little bit easier. So I enjoyed that a lot. It actually made me think of something I'd heard C.S. Lewis say. Well, he didn't say it. Jeffrey Howard, who's narrating Mere Christianity, said it. But anyway, C.S. Lewis is talking about the idea of middle age as being that time when you kind of go crazy. You look back and you regret the things you haven't done and you miss your nostalgic for your life as it used to be, or it didn't turn out the way you thought it would. And so you go off and you do something insane, or you get divorced, or you, you know, just some huge change that's just ridiculous. And he said, you know, instead of nostalgically thinking about how you used to paddle around, why don't you go take swimming lessons? You'd be surprised at how that changes things. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's just like us with these dance lessons, which I have always wanted to do never been brave enough, really. And, you know, honestly, for a lot of my life, didn't have the time, especially with the kids in the house and everything. So a lot of times it's that idea of be brave enough to do that one thing that you've always kind of wanted to do. So think of what that thing is. Go do it. Nothing big, (laughs) just swimming lessons or dance lessons or something like that. (laughs) I don't want to be responsible for any middle-aged crazy. All right, that's enough talking about all that stuff. 
We will be back soon with more of the people in the mist. I'm hearing little bits here and there to say that people are enjoying it. So I'm very glad to hear that because I love this story. Just so much great adventure. And of course, I also enjoy reading to you. So I really appreciate you coming by to listen because otherwise I wouldn't be doing it. And oh my gosh, do you realize the next episode will be episode 250? That's a lot. (laughs) I never thought I'd be doing 250 episodes or I'd have never started. I guess that's the other benefit to doing something small like swim lessons or dance lessons or a blog or a podcast or something like that. Just start small. Don't worry about what it'll turn into. Just have fun. And on that note, I bid you adieu. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.